My fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. As we take on a feast for crows, Valar Reredus seeks to entertain while preparing you for the ominous winds of winter. Many of the new plot lines and locations launched in this book are far from resolved, so we're at our greatest heights of mystery yet. For the remainder of the Valar Reredus journey, we'll be looking ahead, theorizing, guessing, trying to look at things at different angles, if not more than we've been looking back. But we'll be doing a lot of that too. And the core message remains true. The best books are those that hold up to repeated rereading. Thanks, George R. Martin. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets. We discuss all the chapters in advance each week on Facebook, Flick, Discord, and sometimes on Slack, too. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Thanks to the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show for being in tandem with us. His tandem version is called Scraps and Scrolls, and you can find his thoughts over there, as well as many of them here as part of our episodes. And same goes for Nina Friel, whose blog is called Good Queen Alley with one L. That's over on Tumblr. And her thoughts are throughout every episode as well. If you want to support us financially, the best way to do that is on Patreon. You can get access to things like special bonus episodes. We have an episode on Gogasos, the blood magic city near Sothorios. We have some extra chapter episodes. We have the Where Are They Now episodes that feature what happens to what, where a lot of the characters from the early books are now, kind of keeping you up to date on second, third level characters. Uh, we've got some other ones that I'm forgetting about right now. <laughs> and you can also get access to scripts and fun things like that, occasional shout-outs. So there's lots of benefits. However, if you want to keep it even simpler, we have another option available. You can sign up to support us on Anchor. That's Spotify's company. They bought, they bought Anchor a while back. And so it's kind of simple, especially if you already have Spotify. It just adds to your bill. And there's no perks or anything like that. It's just a straightforward recurring donation and very simple. One, five, or ten bucks. So that's available there now, too. You can find the link in the description if you aren't uh, excited about Patreon or you'd like to use something else. we got that option for you. But let's get going. How about what we've got today, which is two jammy chapters. The way Feast for Crows is laid out, we don't have as many repeat chapters in the same session as we did in previous books, but we do have it occasionally still, and this is one of those times. Jamie 4 is Dairy Girls, a.k.a. the one where Lancel confesses his confession. Brienne 6, the hound is dead. Long live the hound, a.k.a. the one at the quiet aisle. Cersei 7, much ado about navies, a.k.a. drinking to forget. And finally, Jamie 5, the wit and wisdom of Jenna Lannister, a.k.a. a game of telephones. The death of laughter is a theme today, I think, though we also have one of the funniest characters in the books, Jenna Lannister. It's her that mentions Tywin didn't trust laughter. The impact of Tywin's utter lack of joy in life after Joanna's death is a major factor in all the Lannister lives of this generation. And this 
batch of chapters perhaps touches on more Lannister characters than any before. Certainly there's no humor at Derry after so much horror now followed by so much piety. Neither of those would really leave a lot of room for laughter. The description of the plums is of a typical boisterous family. But Hardstone Plum is the quiet, serious, and violent type. Even more so is Sir Illin Payne, and his version of laughter is unsettling even to Jamie. The clacking sound a bit reminiscent of the cracking sound made by the other's laughter in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. Sir Hyle's joke is not well-received at the Quiet Isle, but the group is. They're given a welcome respite. Still, though peaceful and devout, they aren't much for laughing in general. After all, they're penitent monks, basically. Vows of silence don't allow much room for laughing. There's no exception made for laughter when you've taken a vow of silence. They're atoning for their sins, and with the horror of salt pans so close by, the mood is even lower. There's not much to laugh about even setting aside the vows of silence. Humor is a luxury, right? And when times are tough, it can help pick people back up and lighten the mood a little bit. But sometimes things are so tough that you don't even have room for that. And it figures then that Cersei laughs at an inappropriate time in her chapter. She has the luxury and privilege of laughter, but she chooses to wield it so, so very grossly. Not long after Sir Loras asked for permission to take Dragonstone, which is an incredibly brave and dangerous event, Cersei just kind of breaks out laughing. And Kyburn seems amused at the prospect of his undead champion taking a place on the Kingsguard. And we know for sure not to laugh with Kyburn, at least not ha-ha laughing. As we know, however, there is a spot already open on the Kingsguard. Thanks to Aris Okart's death, they're waiting for a spot to open when there's already one. And that's uh, exactly the one he's going to fill once King's Landing finds out about it, which is actually quite a while from now. It won't be till very late in A Dance with Dragons. Maybe there'll be some laughter by then. We'll see. Another theme today is the responsibility of the liege. Derry, Lannister, to the people, to the faith. What's the job? What's Lancel's job there? What's his responsibility? Same goes for the ongoing discussion about Quincy Cox and salt pans. Same also goes very prominently in Cersei's chapter where the discussion encircles the responsibility of the throne versus the Ironborn and whether it's Marjorie and Highgarden's job to defend the Shield Islands or take them back or how much the Iron Throne should get involved, etc. The question of the loyalty of the River Lords is a huge question in both of Jamie's chapters, whether or not they're working with the Brotherhood what their job is in terms of helping repair the land around them, where their loyalties should lie. Do they have to fight for the Westerners because they're beaten, or is it their duty to try and throw off the yoke? And how do they prioritize? Is it survival first, loyalty second, or other way around? How does this all work out? Same goes for the Blackfish. Is it more important for him to continue fighting for a kingdom that appears dead, or... Is it more important for him to try to preserve the lives of his followers or those that are in his charge? Same difference. Tough questions, really. We were going to try to answer some of them, but I don't think we'll be able to fully answer them. More like just explore them. And finally, we have a theme of confession. Maribald is a listener of confessions. He takes confessions like, you know, it's a rather normal thing to hear about a priest doing in the real world, too. Lancel confesses his sins. Sandor confesses his hate. We hear about that happening off screen. Brienne, at the end of the Quiet Isle chapter, 
unleashes a torrent of emotion and things that are on her mind, things that have traumatized her, things that have bothered her, things that are weighing on her. It's very much like a confession session. Cersei learns Bronn coerced a confession of her involvement in the Stokeworth debacle, a different kind of confession. Nonetheless, it is a confession. And Jamie nightly confesses his fears and angers and concerns to Sir Illyn, who he is confident can't spill those secrets. Big Super Chat from the New Dad Podcast says, Happy Sunday to the best fandom and podcast in the realm. Excited to hear Aziz's thoughts on Loris when we get there. George taught at Clark College, all girls, the all boys school across town. Loris College was also his alma mater. Oh, very cool. I think you mentioned that a while back, Tommy, but I had forgotten. That's very cool. Loris College. Right on. Yeah, I wonder if that's the uh, the reference. That's kind of neat. I bet it is. All boys school named Loris. <laughs> that's a tongue-in-cheek joke there, George. But also, yeah, shout out to the new dad podcast. Let's get to Jamie Four. Dairy Girls, a.k.a. the one where Lancel confesses his confession. I don't actually watch the show Dairy Girls, but a couple people pointed out they like this title. I, I do watch it. <laughs> I think uh, our friend Warren Dudson did as well. The, the Celtic... Uh, the Celtic Night Celtic of Night. the Salmon of Knowledge. That's right. Salmon I went and saw the Salmon of Knowledge, notably when we were uh, in Ireland. That's right. Of course, the Dairy Girls in this case are Amore and Maria. And it's a very interesting chapter. It's probably one that flies under the radar for some people, but it's it doesn't have one overwhelming plot point. It was harder than usual for me to pick a title for this one. Uh, I'm, I'm appreciative that we picked a plan that allows for two titles for each one because there's always so much going on in all these chapters. But this one isn't is a little bit more in that direction where there's rather than one central plot or a couple central plots, there's just a dozen medium to small ones. But Take that with a grain of salt because some of these are kind of sneaky. Some of them are kind of historical. But what I mean is by taking this with a grain of salt is you never know what plots are going to look bigger later, right? Maybe this Hardstone Plum character turns out to be important or more important. Or maybe he just turns out to be nothing. Maybe Maria Frey or Amore Frey become really important. Small characters who are just being introduced or just being explored, it might just be because they're important for the scene, but it might be because they're going to come up again. Literal and metaphorical identity issues are big in this one. Lancel and Jamie's roles, assumption of the name Derry, again, loyalty traditions. Characters like Barrick and Stoneheart are discussed. Barrick or Stoneheart. Gregor or Sandor, Sandor or Rorge. These are literal identity issues as in who was that? <laughs> so multiple angles on the identity issue, the literal and metaphorical, as I said. And who are these wolves that are around this area? Are they Karstarks? Are they direwolves? Are they a little of both? Yeah, a little of both. And this chapter has a surprising amount of supernatural in it. Speaking of direwolves, Jamie continues to play detective, which is very useful given so many plots at once and given how many of them are intended to deceive both characters and readers. Mm -hmm. For example, this opening line's a bit deceptive. The fields outside the walls of Derry were being tilled once more. Yeah, the opening lines fit perfectly with both the setting and the themes of this chapter. The dairy sigil is the plowman. So when Jamie sees the fields being tilled once more, an oxen breaking new ground on the edge of a nearby wood, etc., it's a sign. It looks like dairy is becoming dairy again. And it was Gregor who killed Sir Raymond Derry. He took the castle from the child lord Lyman Derry, put everyone, including the child lord Lyman, to the sword. And then it was Roose Bolton's orders to Helm and Tallheart that caused Derry to be burnt, his just 
pretend fake out orders, really. Derry was truly victim of Roos's shenanigans without having any hatred toward Derry directly. They just happened to be in his way. They were a perfect fall guy. So the Lannisters are trying to build upon what they themselves have destroyed. They and Roos, with his alliance to them, are the reason this place is now torched and destroyed and demolished. So much bloodshed, destruction. How can you get a piece from this? How can the dairy folk ever say, oh, it's all forgive and forget? Uh, not that they have much they can do about it, but give them a chance. Give them a chance to switch sides. Maybe they will. And Jamie, as though, though he's a far more decent than most, especially around these parts, he's pretty dismissive about it. And maybe, maybe it's in part because there's not much he can do. They're desperately trying to get one more harvest in. And that's what looks good on the surface. Oh, they're tilling the field. That's normal. But as we see in Jamie's chapters, winter is coming. This harvest may not happen. It may be too late. In fact, it almost certainly is too late. So this is not only a vain hope. We almost certainly know that it will fail. And thus, all this effort is just piled on top of the horrors that Derry has experienced. It is desperation. Jamie is fully aware. Maybe that's why he seems a bit insensitive to it. It's because he really doesn't have an answer. There's nothing he can do. And he may perhaps doesn't want to give them false hope. We're really going all the way back to the first act of A Game of Thrones here by coming to Derry. This is where the king's huge entourage with the Starks stopped so they could search for Arya after the Joffrey confrontation with Nymeria and Micah and all that. Even more importantly, it's where Ned had to kill Lady. Well, had to kill Lady. Huge, huge moment for Sansa, obviously, but also for Sansa and Arya's relationship was a defining moment, perhaps, as well as everyone's relationship with Joffrey going downhill very quickly. Ned and Robert, of course, it wasn't a falling out, but it was Ned realizing perhaps that Robert wasn't the man he thought he was or has no, hasn't been that for a while. In other words, there are just huge consequences, a lot of setup, things that are still in play now. Like I said, the beginning one to look out for here is Sir Harwin Plum, nicknamed Hardstone. He killed the broken men who had taken up residence in the burned-out castle. He's suspicious of the commoners and their loyalty to the river lords. He seems to be moving on Amore Frey, but Lancel doesn't care since he's going to abandon his marriage and his lordship anyway. So this guy is definitely taking advantage of the situation. I don't know that he's a bad guy, but he's not a good guy. He doesn't give that read at all. And he's a, not the type of leader necessarily for what is discussed here. They talk about how winning the love of the commons and is important. It's, we're going to talk about it a little more in a bit here with how, that's how Arthur Dane won the loyalty of the commoners back against the Kingswood Brotherhood. But if you look at someone like Hardstone or, or even Amore Frey, a.k.a. Gatehouse Amy, they're really not the type to do that. Amore Frey doesn't seem to care much about the commoners. She's more above it all, in a sense, like uh, not in a good way. Not that she's a bad person, but this is not a, something that I would praise her for. And certainly not Hardstone, who we just talked about how he's suspicious of the commoners and traded broken men like most people treat broken men, but without the kind of pity that we've learned from Septon Maribald is perhaps appropriate sometimes. So he doesn't have any of that. He's very uh, straightforward in his, his beliefs, I think. The wolves, of course. We, we're constantly hearing about the wolves. We hear about them about as often as we hear about salt pans. It's really interesting sort of major stories that are percolating through the Riverlands. So every place they stop, 
they meet someone else who has that on their mind. It makes perfect sense. These are major events in these regions, and they're slowly making their way through these regions. But it's also a reminder that it's not just direwolves. It's also, there's still so-called white star or white sun men, which are the Karstark men in small groups, and they're desperate and dangerous. And we'll see, too, that the wolves are escalating as well. Just as the broken men are getting more bold and more desperate, I'm not sure that the wolves are getting more desperate, but they're definitely getting bolder. And by Jamie 7, they're killing armed men in groups, meaning attacking armored and armed men, not showing the kind of fear wolves, what you'd expect wolves to show. And Detective Jamie, by then, this is, again, Jamie 4, but by Jamie 7, he's going to wonder, is this the same wolf that mauled Joffrey at the crossroads? I bring it up here because this is the closest we get to that in Jamie's chapters uh, geographically in the short term. So that's pretty important. And it, it reflects the subtext of these hidden loyalties of, well, yeah, the Lannisters have conquered us, or so we got to play nice, but we would love a chance to throw this off, whether it's to get back to following their traditional river lords, or whether it's to bring back this new Stark kingdom, this new kingdom of North and Rivers. Either way, I'm sure they'd pick either over the Lannisters, though they may not be willing to suffer more, a whole lot more for it, considering they may not have much suffering left to give. So it's really interesting, the subtext here is these hidden loyalties are really reflective of the Stark sigil. It's a wolf wolfishness that's actually a term used by Davin Lannister in Jamie 5. So we have actual wolves and people who are maintaining hidden loyalty to wolves. It's pretty cool. The Brother Without Banners, of course, is another topic here. And interestingly... We don't hear a whole lot of how the wolves are a problem for them. Of course, we don't get a lot from them directly anyway, but it does seem to be another example of how the wolves maybe aren't teaming up with the Brotherhood without banners, but they aren't foes of each other. They sort of have, they're sort of natural allies of a, of a sort. So Lady Maria is the widow of Merritt Frey. She's the mother of Little Walder. That's another interesting little connection there. Now, Little Walder, of course, is dead. Uh, not yet in, in, in our reread, but he is going to die in A Dance with Dragons. Good old epilogue Merritt, of course, if you forget, if you happen to forget who that was. He suffered his career-ending head wound against the Kingswood Brotherhood, led by Simon Toyne and the Smiling Knight, of whom tales certainly persist. Smiling Knight obviously gets mentioned in this chapter. Um, it's really interesting what kind of character Maria Frey is in terms of, and, and Amore, in terms of their roles in this story here. Maria is right along with some of these other lords in accusing both the commons and the river lords of working with the Brotherhood Without Banners. And of course, she says this even without being fully aware of how right she is. She's not wrong. <laughs> and, and the wolves are working there too, apparently. Amore, meanwhile, is shocked, shocked that the idea that Riverland small folk would be fighting against their own lords, shocking to their own lords. Ah. And she just doesn't get it, how they, they, she thinks their loyalty should come first no matter what, to take abuse and suffering and not look out for yourself at any point. Like at some point, you know, starving and, and staying alive is more important than loyalty. Now, 
if you're a knight, you're supposed to fight to the death for your lord. And it seems like Morea is putting the obligations of knighthood on the common folk or something like that, where you're supposed to die for your lord no matter what, even though the lord does very little for them. Mean, meanwhile, lords do provide quite a bit for their household knights, typically. More, but with, for the commons, it's more of an expectation. It's like, well, you're going to give us your taxes. You're going to come fight when we say, and we might protect you. But when things get real bad, you can't even count on that. And that's clearly what's happened here. Only a couple of the river lords have really tried hard to protect their people. Lancel is doing it a little bit, but even he isn't, doing, isn't raising the bar a lot. What we see here is him bringing them inside his walls, giving them shelter, and giving them some food, which is no doubt. I'm, not, I'm obviously not going to criticize that. That's a good thing. But this is a very slow bar. He's not really focused on helping the commoners beyond that. He's more focused on, well, I don't want to call him selfish, but it comes to mind. He's more focused on his own faith, his own attitudes towards the gods it's almost like he's got this selfish devotion. <laughs> it's kind of a strange, it's almost an oxymoron. But a part of it does seem selfish to me, even though he's far, far less selfish than average. So it doesn't really stand out compared to the selfishness that's around him. And Jamie gets an answer, or at least the answer is revealed to us, why the commoners are more seemingly loyal to these few river lords, or even more so to the Brotherhood, because they're the ones taking care of them. And that is at the heart of the feudal contract. The Lord takes care of the vassal. The vassal gives service to the Lord. If you're not taking care, then you're not holding up your end of the bargain. The small folk have a very good reason to say, hey, look, we held up our end, but you're not holding up your end. You didn't protect us. That's your job. That is, by the way, in the next chapter, why some will say that Sir Quincy Cox should have come out and died for the people of salt pans, even though it was hopeless, because it was his job. He stayed behind his walls and died, or and, and lived, when, when the people he was charged to protect died. Amore Frey is great take by Nina here. She's almost a, she's another example of George playing with tropes a bit. She has this very, very chivalric lady type where she's very traditional in that she just adores chivalry and thinks that very outspoken about the men saving her and being brave and being gallant and courage being a paramount ideal. So she's got that attitude, very straightforward, almost like what Sansa would have was on the path for. Yet she's promiscuous and open with her sexuality, which is very, very much the opposite of this type of character going by what's normal and going by the stereotypes, right? Normally, they're supposed to be very protective of their sexuality, meant to only be for their husband, preserve themselves for marriage. It's supposed to be sitting behind closed doors. You don't talk about it very much. And that's very much the opposite of what Amore Frey is. I mean, she's Gatehouse Amy, right? That name is, is tossed around pretty frequently. It's not some sort of nickname that only a few people whisper. Like when Harwin Plum says, I'm going to go get the head of Beric Dondarrion, she thinks of him as very gallant in, in doing so. And Lyle Craighall is won over by her because she's such a stereotypical lady of this culture, of traditional Westerosi culture. She's like the, the knightly, well, not a princess, but she's the, the perfect foil for that, the perfect pairing for that. So you see all these sort of 
tropes being played with here where Lyle's like, I will be the knight that you need. And she's like, oh, look at the true knight. Meanwhile, all these horrors are being done. <laughs> it's just, Beric isn't the bad guy. The knight is hunting the man who's helping the commoners, the guy who's actually more of a hero. So it's a, quite an inversion where the, the lady is calling for help and the, the knight comes to help her, but he's coming to help her by killing the guy who's giving food to starving people. Like, wait, <laughs> is he really pledging to go hunt down Robin Hood because Robin Hood is evil? Like, I think we know better <laughs> as readers. Not only that, but Lyle Craycall's not going to kill the hound because there is no hound to go kill, and Brienne is going to kill the one wearing the hound's helmet. So the smiling knight, I love this because Lady Amore calls her or calls him the smiley knight, <laughs> which is like, I don't know that George knew how much better of a joke that would be 15 years later when emojis are, are so much bigger than they were in 2005. What's next? The, the, the happy face knight? Do we have the... The care night, you know. <laughs> I like the heart eyes. Yeah, the night. heart eyes night. <laughs> just need the the order of the emoji to be formed. The order of the green hand is old school. We need a new knighthood now. So he was, a, we've talked about him a few times. Strange combination of cruelty and chivalry. He was in the Kings of Brotherhood. Compare, compare him to Gregor Clegane because uh, Jamie says he, he was someone that men wanted to beat to prove how good they were. He was like the guy to beat to get reputation because he was evil and needed to be defeated. But it was a tough job and a hard job to find him. Ironically, all these people were seeking glory by killing the Smiling Knight, but the guy who killed him, Arthur Dane, really didn't care for the glory and was already quite covered in glory in the first place. So Strongbore, this is a similar point here, he wants the glory of killing the Hound. We have little Alisande Bulwer, who is the lady of Black Crown here. She's the younger, one of the younger girls that hangs around with Marjorie. She's the one that goes on and on about Tommen one day being the champion. Tommen will be the champion. Tommen's the champion. She's actually, again, the lady of Black Crown, despite being only about eight or nine years old. Her grandfather was Sir Victor Tyrell, and he was slain by the Smiling Knight. Little anecdote for you about the Smiling Knight. So Arthur Dane, really interesting story here. People talk about what a great fighter he was, how honorable he was, how noble he was. But this, to me, is the most knightly example of his character that we see, by far. Not as a warrior, by being good, by taking the challenge on for what it is and not making it about violence if it doesn't have to be. Not just going first to drawing swords and hunting down and killing the leaders. He took a much different approach to this campaign. He realized that if you just kill the bandits, you haven't solved the root causes of the problem. It'll only be a matter of time before the bandits come back or a new group of bandits arises. Basically, that's what we have here in this situation. We have a situation there. If it's not dealt with properly, meant if it's not dealt with from the ground up, manage things from by winning over the small folk, taking the bases and the hatred away make the outlaws not a better option. Don't allow them to win the small folk over in the first place. Or if they do, well, just remember that you can do more for them than the, than the rebels ever could. You have more resources. Arthur Dane was able to discuss with King Ares 
some things and bring give more rights to the commons in that area. They were able to shoot more deer, cut down more trees, just expand their grazing areas for their herds. Perhaps those things should have been done long before. Actually, they definitely should have been long before. But it goes to show that when the right man comes along to solve, or a woman comes along to solve the problem, well, people should pay attention to the tools that were used, to the methods that were used, to the strategies that were used here. And that's what Jamie's doing. He's thinking back to one of the few good influences. Notice he's not thinking back to what he learned from Tywin Lannister, a person who very much so would just, would treat the symptoms and not treat the root causes. Tywin would just, I mean, we saw this problem when Tywin was young. He didn't stop the problems that caused a bunch of robber knights to appear in the West. He just killed all the robber knights or had them killed. He didn't address the reasons those problems occurred in the first place. He just very thoroughly dealt with the robber knights. And this looked really good to everyone because it worked. But it didn't really work. It was a temporary solution. It was just a very good temporary solution as far as these things go because Tywin's really effective at slaughter. But it would have been better to create a long-term situation, a long-term solution. And unfortunately, at least in the short term, and by short term, I mean potentially a decade or more, people, how are they going to trust Lannister rule after this, especially in Derry, let alone the rest of the Riverlands that's been ravaged by men sent by the Lannisters? Look at King's Landing. How long has there been ill will towards Tywin over the sack? It's been almost 20 years, yet there are still people, we've talked about it recently, that still remember the sack, that still have issues with House Lannister over that. I'm one of them. Yeah, see? We, we remember. We do. <laughs> what Beric did to win the small folk over in the first place is what Arthur did to defeat the Kingswood Brotherhood and the Brotherhood Without Banners are basically the Kingswood Brotherhood reborn in a different era. And now we have Stoneheart, though. Stoneheart's different. She's cut from a different cloth because the organization prior to being under her was about helping the countryside, helping the commoners. I'm not sure how much of that they're still doing, if any. Certainly, some of the members of the Brotherhood left because of that change in disposition. So let's not go congratulating the Stoneheart-led Brotherhood about their help and about their being good folk because while they're better than some of these Lannisters, they're more about revenge at this point. They've changed too. So these stories all coalesce really well in this chapter. A lot of these different angles come together here. Jamie hears of the stories of Sandor and Saltpans, thinks they sound more like Gregor, and he's right. It's not Gregor. It's also not Sandor. It's neither of them. We've been hearing about the Salt Pans raid since Cersei 3, and Arya was there at the, in her last A Storm of Swords chapter. She got out of there just in time. In this chapter, as they discuss Beric, we get this line from Arwood Frey. Death changed him, the small folks say. You can kill him, but he won't stay dead. How do you fight a man like that? Well, you don't have to fight Beric, but doesn't this, the same logic, the same question applies to the mountain, right? How do you fight a man who won't stay dead? And you could definitely make the same point that death changed him. Jamie also thinks how, quote, boys are the cruelest creatures on the earth. And in this chapter, given the teasing of squires and he thinks about Merritt Frey and how Merritt was a bully. And then when Merritt had his head injury, uh, the boys 
turn that cruelty back around on him, which they probably would have done even if he had been nice to them before. Given what I just said about all the stories coalescing, of course, thinking about Gregor and the cruelest boys on uh, boys being the cruelest creatures on earth. Well, Gregor, what he did to Sandor when they were both boys, I mean, that needs no explanation. Very, very interesting here is the idea that Lady Stoneheart with her men dis- disappeared into the neck around Hagsmire. It makes sense. We hear about that area a couple of times as a haunt of the Brotherhood. It's certainly near Old Stones, which is where she had her argument with Rob about, about his will. And of course, we, there was a lot of pathos in those chapters around Old Stones about... Way disease. Hmm. Who's Will? <laughs> We've also heard rumors of them being further east lately. So it seems like they have a wide range, Stoneheart and the band. There's not one hideout they have. They have a number of hideouts, which makes sense. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Operating over such a wide span of territory, you don't want to like have to go travel three days just to get back to find a place to sleep. When she does finally meet Brienne, Stoneheart does, and the group, it's going to be somewhere middle east-west Riverlands. So east of Hagsmire, east of Old Stones, but... Yeah, somewhere in between Derry and there, I guess. But we're not sure why they want to be up in that area. Is there? Are they looking for more allies? They work with the Kranig men a little bit. Is it just really remote? Um, maybe they feel safer there because they know the, the the ways around those swamps is a little of both. How Mullen could be there. Joe Buckley suggests Mage Mormont, maybe. Some of these other characters that have been missing since being sent off to deliver Rob's will. We still don't know where they are. And... There's a chance they're still associated here in this area. Think about this, talking about how this chapter takes us back to Arya's time with Micah and Nymeria and Joffrey, but it also takes us back to early in Bran's arc with his coma vision. Check this out, quote. There were shadows all around them. One shadow was dark as ash with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armored like the sun, golden and beautiful, Over them both loomed giant in armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. Two chapters from now, Cersei and Kyburn discuss the thick armor for the first time. Jaime's going to be captured by Brienne and Stoneheart after Brienne is captured by Stoneheart. And she's going to be captured because she fights Rorge wearing the Hound's Helm, which is, you know, I think when George wrote this part about Bran here, this part of the dream. He was referring to the actual Hound before, because it was before the five-year gap was planned. Nevertheless, it applies here. So Jamie's being impacted from multiple angles here. First of all, he's in the vision. He's the one armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. But over them both loomed a giant in armor made of stone over the Hound and over him. That's very clearly happening. They've all come together. They've all coalesced because of these stories. Now, Brienne isn't featured here, of course. But she doesn't need to be. It still, it still works really nicely. That's really smooth by George. I think he may have slightly changed his plans, but it still works so perfectly. The hound's head helmet is so wonderful as a symbol, even though it's associated with such evil. But the way it creates these identity themes on a small scale, it's a microcosm of bigger stories. It, it leads us to ideas like how someone can live for three or 400 years well, maybe they weren't alive for three or 400 years. Maybe they just carried this persona forward. Like 
the Shrouded Lord, the Hound's Helm is a similar concept, or like the Grey King or the Bloodstone Emperor, something we'll talk about more later. But it comes up here very nicely as well. And as, as George is wont to do, these, these themes cross multiple chapters, and they tend to do that in chapters that are close to each other, which is why I like to look at a lot of these chapters in groups, because they all work together so well. So Lancel, of course, is a huge feature of this chapter. Lancel and Bonifer Hasty. speaking of people having things in common, we compared Bonifer Hasty to Victorian, which is not so obvious, even though it does work really well. It's not something that stands out really clearly. Here, it's a lot more straightforward. We just saw Sir Bonifer Hasty last chapter. He's extremely devout, joyless. You know, he also had a relationship with a queen that didn't go so well. Different kind of relationship, but still serves pretty well as a parallel. You get the sense that both of them are decent, but not really that great, more devoted to faith in a, almost, like I said, almost a selfish way. But still, despite me putting that charge on them, they're both a lot less selfish than, say, the average person around these parts. So even while I'm criticizing, I'm also giving them praise and setting the bar low. So they may not make the problems worse. In fact, they definitely won't make the problems worse, at least most of them. But they're not big on helping rebuild either. They're just sort of like uh, an end to the badness. But you need a different type of person to rebuild and grow. It's sort of like the Sept, the High Sparrow versus Maribald. They, they come from similar places, but one's really out to dominate and control and to almost to destroy, while the other is really, really focused on healing. Double confession, though. Lancel doesn't just confess that he murdered Robert or he took part in murdering Robert, but he confesses that he slept with Cersei. So it's very unambiguous for Jamie now. Jamie was doubting it. He was hoping Tyrion lied to him. He was sort of banking on Tyrion having lied to him, which Tyrion did lie to him, but not about the one point he thinks. <laughs> he was thinking and hoping that Tyrion was lying about who Cersei has been sleeping with rather than lying about Joffrey which, as we know, Jamie doesn't actually care nearly as much about. This hits Jamie so hard. The killing of Robert was almost like a shrug to him compared to confirmation that Cersei slept with Lancel. And it painful to him. He, for a second, almost becomes Cersei-like in his willful thinking through of the issue. He goes so far as to ask Lancel if he forced her. Like, no, of course he didn't force her. No, that's clearly not the case. But he's almost hoping that Lancel raped his sister because it may, means that she didn't choose it. That's how difficult this is for him to accept. Of course, this is shades of, of Tyrion being upset with Jamie for saying, you really have to ask if I killed Joffrey? Fine, yeah, I did. That Remember, that's why he said it, because it pissed him off so badly. We know he didn't do it. But he threw it in Jamie's face because Jamie asked the question. Lancel has become so devout and humble and pious that if this insulted him, he doesn't show it. He takes it with grace. But it's an insulting thing to say. If this conversation was a duel, Lancel and Jamie, then Lancel comes out the winner pretty clearly. But Jamie makes it easy for him. It's incredible the hypocrisy that Jamie does not see from himself about his vows and says all the things you're giving up. If we didn't tell you, if, if, if Ashea, this quote Ashea is about to read, if it was in a vacuum, if we didn't tell you this was Jamie speaking, you might think it was someone speaking to Jamie, not Jamie speaking to Lancel. Even if this is true, 
you are a lion of the rock, a lord. You have a wife, a castle, lands to defend, people to protect. If the gods are good, you will have sons of your blood to follow you. Why would you throw all that away for, for some vow? That's exactly what Tywin and Cersei have been saying to you forever, Jamie. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, they, maybe the, some of it's a little off. The whole wife part, Tywin had a different idea than Cersei on who that would be. But still, he's given Casterly Rock the opportunity to have that. <laughs> That's the most powerful castle in the realm, arguably, and certainly the richest. So he is literally giving all that away for some vow. <laughs> It's really incredible how Jamie does not realize what he's saying. It, it, it's partly because he's still wrapped up about Cersei. He's just gotten this news, but it's really just goes to show how self-righteous he is here. But Lancel is doing a better job of being Jamie than Jamie was, especially around Brienne. Just, I don't want any of this. When he got back to King's Landing after spending that time with Brienne and, and having a renewed interest in appreciation for what knighthood means. He's like, I don't want to be an heir. I just want to be a Kingsguard. I want to be honorable, all this other stuff. I don't want to be a Lannister. But he keeps getting sucked back into it. They keep pulling him back in. And he can't fully divorce himself from it in part because he has this attachment to his sister. But Lancel's doing it. Lancel really is breaking free. Lancel is, is actually pu pushing his Lannister side aside. I wonder if Jamie isn't like, wow, he's, you're, you're actually doing it. If there's a little bit of projecting going on here. He's like, well, I couldn't do it. Well, so you can't either. But he is doing it. Lancel is succeeding. It may not bring him peace or happiness, but he is pushing away his Lannister crimson and gold in a way that Jamie has been unable to do, even though it's partially done on his side. So this is really ironic because in this chapter, we have Jamie wanting to be Arthur Dane and thinking how he really isn't or has thought about that before, while Lancel wanted to be Jamie. <laughs> he's not the Jamie that he set out to be, but he's, setting, but he's becoming the Jamie that Jamie now wants to be. <laughs> so he's out Jamieing Jamie on Jamie version two when they both set out to be Jamie version one when Jamie was actually trying to be Arthur, which was really nothing at all like Jamie. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of growth in here, a lot of realizing the man you thought you were idolizing. You weren't getting the point of that man in the first place. Jamie, when he was younger, he didn't think about how Arthur Dane won the love of the commons. That wasn't the thing that drew him to Jamie, to drew him to Arthur Dane, the legend, the hero. It wasn't his pro-commoners reforms that draw the young boys' uh, hearts and minds. They're like, I'm going to be like that. They're thinking of his sword, his tournament wins, his stoicism, all these other things. But really, the heart of Arthur Dane is, is, is right here. So another family trait that comes up a lot, it's going to come up even more in the other chapters, both Cersei and Jamie's other chapters, is just how these elements that run throughout the whole family, like this sarcasm trait. They all seem to have this sarcasm and how they look at kingship here. Look at this, look at another exchange that Lancel very clearly, win, quote unquote, wins when talking to Jamie here. The brave man slays with a sword, the craven with a wineskin. We are both kingslayers, sir. And this is more of his humility here. He's, he's saying we're both kingslayers, but he's still giving... 
some praise to Jamie. He's, he's still taking more blame on himself for saying, well, I did it with a wineskin. You at least did it with a sword. <laughs> you at least faced the king. I had to, you know, be a sneak in the skulk and all that. So he's, he feels not great about that. A, a similar argument is made for both of them, potentially off page here. Jamie argues that Robert maybe wasn't a true king. So that's happened here, which is something that Cersei does in other spots. And other people maybe would argue that Ares was not a true king, that he deserved to die. So if, if your argument is that Robert wasn't a true king, then Ares almost certainly is even less of one. I mean, Robert was a bad king, but he didn't go around burning his counselors. And he was, he was a lot less flagrant about his bad kingship. When, when, Ned was, when Ned said, yeah, you weren't as bad as Ares when Robert was dying, he wasn't lying. <laughs> it's like, yeah, at least I wasn't as bad as Ares. Like, yep, you can at least claim that. It's a low bar, but you did clear it. Now, Pia, that, another really important part of this, this chapter, she is, of course, following along in the, in the group now because Sir Bonifer Hasty kicked her out of Harrenhal, basically. And she is a really interesting focal point for a lot of these themes. For example, she is the commoner here. She's the one that needs protection. She's the one that's forgotten and cast aside by knights, not just by Sir Bonifer, but Lancel doesn't have much, doesn't give much thought to her. And, but she's very much the type of person that needs knightly protection. The kind of person that, uh, she doesn't have the big older brother to protect her like Jenna talks about in Jamie 5, our, his next chapter, that everyone needs a big older brother to protect them when you're a little you know, girl. You know, everyone needs someone like that. Now, Jenna was thinking of her, you know, that particular example where 10-year-old Tywin spoke up for her. But that is the core of knighthood, protecting the weak, protecting those who can't protect themselves. Pia is very much of a microcosm of that because a knight made her the way she is now by smashing her face and thus making that point even more clear and showing that she, you know, isn't the type that can defend herself. Like most people are. Most people cannot defend themselves, especially against Gregor Clegane, especially against armies, especially against Tywin Lannister. So central point of the theme of protecting those who need protecting and not forgetting about them, not abandoning people just like her. But she also gives us a cross theme to characters, commoners who exist in other parts of the world. It's like some toy castle, Jamie heard her say. She's known no home but Hall. he reflected. Every castle in the realm will seem small to her, except for the rock. So a lot of y'all noticed how this is an inversion of what we see with Gilly or Igrit. How Igrit was like, oh my gosh, this is a castle. And John's like, no, that's just a tower house. <laughs> and so this is very much the opposite because Pia's only ever seen Hall. And if you grew up in by what's by far the largest castle in the world, everything else is going to look pretty small. <laughs> and that's exactly what the case is. So this is the very opposite. It's really neat. It's a, it's a lesson in perspective. It's what you're used to. It's all way and where you're standing. Derry would look like a huge castle probably to Gilly or Igret. Definitely, definitely. Not after Gilly sees Old Town maybe, but <laughs> if she had seen it before, yes. Whereas if, if Pia had seen Old Town, I think she would have been, nah, about the castles, but the city. Yeah, the city would still impress her and the high tower itself would impress her. But, you know, the size of the whole thing, she'd be like, eh, you know, <laughs> I've seen bigger. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, she's seen bigger. That's what right. she said, yeah. <laughs> In line with Jamie's sort of getting it, he gets it better than just about anyone else. I shouldn't criticize him too much because the bar, again, is so low. 
well, he wants to deal justice out. And he's trying to be more about justice. And this is part of becoming more like Arthur Dane than the younger version of him understood Arthur Dane to be. And cutting heads off and presenting them to the people who are victims of those crimes isn't the cleanest form of justice, but around what it certainly passes in these parts. And so when he kills this man that claims he had raped Pia dozens of times, and he doesn't understand why he's being put to death for this, well, that's because justice has been so sorely lacking. It's again, all in where you're standing, just as in the case of these castles, what's large to one person may be small to someone else. What passes for justice in one realm may look like lawlessness elsewhere. Jamie cutting the head off of a multiple-time rapist does not stop the problems in these parts. It doesn't, again, does not address any root causes, but it does take one POS off the map. One doer of violent deeds less is definitely a plus, even if it maybe doesn't prevent more of him from coming in the future still. And she does smile a little when presented with this head. Uh, When this guy's head is cut off and she's given to him, she smiles a little bit. And it really is sad, too. This guy is like, what did I do wrong? We've all done this. That's the, it's terrifying that that is how low the bar is. He's, he says, look, we're all doing this. I thought it was okay because everyone's doing it. The Riverlands needs healing. It needs more Maribalds and more Beric Dondarians. And I don't mean Stoneheart. I mean Beric Dondarian, the one who was buying food and giving it to the commoners. That's the kind of thing we need. And what Jamie's doing is sort of just stopping the fighting without necessarily addressing the root causes of it. And he can't, though. It's not within his power necessarily to do. He doesn't have all the authority. He's not fully in charge here. And he doesn't fully understand it. And a lot of people won't work with him because he's a Lannister. And it's his family that did all this damage. Jamie hears, uh, thinks about Pia probably being barren, Nina writes, and it's, there's an opportunity for some supernatural theorizing here. Being born and raised at Harrenhal, every house that holds Harrenhal seems to die out within two to four generations. There might be something in the water, in the stones, a curse, a supernatural thing, magical, dragony, who knows, infertility coming quickly or soon, birth defects, things like that. So that, that's entirely possible. Certainly, Hall has these stories around it, and a lot of it is just the stories, but there is room for some real magic to be going on there as well. Stannis shows up in this scene in, in spirit when uh, we get the line, hang, Amy, your father was not a tapestry after she says hung. <laughs> One of the keys here with the dairy loyalty is considering that they were, when we first came here, we have this bit about the tapestries and we have Jamie remembering that they that he and Tyrion took note of the tapestries, the Targaryen tapestries when they were there a long time back as well. So taking that a little farther forward, eh, what does that take us? I think it means Derry is a strong candidate to perhaps switch sides to either join up with a young Griff or perhaps Daenerys or perhaps one then the other. Now, three major reasons to believe House Derry would prefer the Targaryens. First of all, this memory, this memory of loyalty. They were hyper-loyal to the Targaryens. Willem Derry, don't forget, Master at Arms of the Red Keep, was the one who Danny has these fond memories of, of stepping up for them in their hour of need and helping them escape the continent. So there's this historic memory and this loyalty. 
Then the brutality of the Lannisters, that's a big one. Then there's this sort of symbolic rejection of the North via the slaying of Lady. So they're not necessarily happy with the kingdom of the North either. They're not necessarily loyalists to Rob and his kingdom either. They haven't really seen good things from that either. So the Targaryens seem like perhaps the most likely spot for them to end up as far as uh, eventual loyalty. I don't know how much help they'll provide to the Targaryens given how ravaged they are, but still, it could matter. Someone like Hardstone is a, again, I mentioned him as some, look, appearing to be rather formidable. Nina also notes, great point here in Brienne 7. We're about to have Brienne 6, by the way. So this isn't too far in the future. We're, we're going to hear about how it was Lord Derry who chopped up the so-called clanking dragon sign, because which is a very powerful allegory for red versus black dragons and black fires versus true Targaryens. And he hated the sight of the black dragon because he's a red dragon loyalist, because he's pro-Targaryen. And the whole metaphor there was he threw the black dragon into the river, and then it washed ashore with red rust, which is a sign that Aegon is covered in this red rust as a fake. He's actually a black dragon. And it's a really, really excellent allegory here. And this is uh, ties together as far as the fate of House Derry and their eventual loyalties. So I, I wonder if it won't be Daenerys rather than, than Aegon that they attach themselves to in the long run because of the whole connection to Willem. Um, and because I think young Griff is going to lose out. So there's multiple reasons there. So Red Ronnet's gone. For now, he was sent off to Maidenpool to deliver Willis Manderley. Not much to say about him. He'll be back on screen when the Golden Company shows up and John Connington takes back Griffin's Roost and he's like, hey, I'm not on his side. I'm not on his side. And in addition to Jamie's care for the small folk and Pia being that microcosm, he talks to Peck about how to treat her nicely. And again, it's a low bar, but it's genuine. And education and leadership are his weapons now that he can't use his sword arm to fight. So the way he can do good is by mentoring those who do wield the swords. Teach them to be decent folk, especially when they're young, when they're more open to being taught. And Peck here is, what, 15? He looks up to Jamie. He's uh, in a position to mentor this kid. And so he's giving him good advice, telling him to be gentle to women. This is this is knightly education here. It doesn't seem that way, but teaching a man to be gentle with a woman he's with, no matter whether he's going to marry her or not, you know, it would be nice if that kind of lesson wasn't necessary, but it very clearly is, even in this day and age. His lordship's bed <laughs> is what Peck says when Jamie suggests him <laughs> using Lancel's bed to sleep with Pia, and Jamie's like, yeah, don't worry about it. That dude's not coming back to his bed anytime soon. And he probably won't care even if he does because uh, he doesn't even care about people sleeping with his wife. So he's definitely not going to care about people sleeping in his bed. And is this... Uh, but it's it's also very sarcastic coming from Jamie, a little wry uh, humor there because Jamie in Derry slept with Cersei <laughs> with Robert just right there, passed out drunk. Uh, so he knows from experience the, what, what it's like. <laughs> But also, it, Jamie doesn't wear his Kingsguard white here. He wears his Lannister colors. He says it's no place for whites. And Joe wonders if that's in part because of his shame at how he broke his vows in this manner we just described, sleeping with Cersei 
with the king right there. He's not proud of that. Young Jamie was like, ha I'm getting away with something. But older Jamie was like, ashamed of that. And But <laughs> despite being ashamed of that, <laughs> he's still giving advice to Peck that's sort of in line with that, but it doesn't contain that same embarrassment. There's nothing to be ashamed of in this case. There's no, he's not a king's guard. Peck isn't breaking some oath like Jamie was. Also, Joe notes that Jamie has a surprising amount of scenes that take place in septs with family members, whether it's with Cersei, whether it's with his bodies of his family, <laughs> with Joffrey or Tywin, whether it's here with Lancel. Yeah, that's a good catch. I never really thought about that. And, you know, being a knight, it's supposed to be tied to worship of the faith and devotion and all that. I mean, think back to his vigil when he was knighted and Arthur Dane tapping him on both shoulders with, with Dawn and his knees being bloody and all that. Yeah, that was an accept too. And of course, confessions that certainly cast the ideas, puts our mind towards septs and, and holy places like that. So again, a little more on how big a deal this was to him that Cersei is cheating on him. The fact that Tyrion wasn't lying about that takes us to other places. What is he going to think now if he's, okay, so Tyrion wasn't lying about the bit about who she's sleeping with. Does that mean he's also not lying about everything else? But still, he still can't seem to think of Tyrion too negatively. He still thinks of, man, it sure would be nice to have Tyrion here to figure, parse some of these lies, to figure out who's telling the truth and who isn't. He thinks of how valuable and useful Tyrion would be with all this back and forth between the commoners and mixed loyalties and the river lords and the, all that. And even with that relationship, even with this wedge between them, Jamie still values Tyrion and knows his worth. Might even be, Joe suggests he might be longing for him a little bit here, even as he's learning these things about him that are working the other direction, maybe making Jamie dislike him even more. He's got reasons to be even more mad at Tyrion or at least to take what Tyrion said more seriously, yet he still holds him in reasonable regard. It's also a reminder of what Jamie used to be. When he thinks that he would have killed Arya to keep Cersei happy, it's a reminder of what I've said several times, that he is not on a redemption arc. He does not think at any point that he shouldn't have done that to Bran. He still thinks it was justified because it was either him or his family. And on some level, he's not wrong. It was either him or his family. That doesn't justify killing Brand for that goal. But again, it's not redemption. He's not trying to make up for that. He's not trying to make up for what his family did here in the Riverlands. He is trying to be better. Again, good, but not redemption. Great thought from Nina here. Lancel was specifically given the, quote, lands, castle, and rights of House Derry by Joffrey after the Blackwater, and that grant was made specifically because House Derry was extinct in the male line, leaving no true-born heirs of lawful Derry blood, but only a bastard cousin. So who is that bastard cousin? We don't actually know who that is. Nina suggests it might be Tristan Rivers of the Golden Company, and we don't, I don't want to go too deep into that theory because it's we've already covered, spent a ton of time on this chapter, but... I like the idea, and it's something to tuck away to consider as many of the Golden Company members are going to be claiming castles in the Reach and the Riverlands as part of their reward for supporting the, the king and as part of reclaiming family castles that were theirs in the time of the Blackfires. And, well, this isn't quite the same in terms of the Blackfire connection, but it is at least in that same vein, given it's the Golden Company. 
Jamie's attitude towards the sparrows in this chapter is extremely similar to Cersei's. Both of them are disturbed by the number of sparrows, but not still. But they're still sort of arrogant about it. Um, maybe not as worried about it as they should be. It's like concerning, but it should be a prime concern rather than you know I might need to take care of that. It should be something that gets taken care of right away. They both are not thinking about the root causes again, where all these. Sparrows are showing up because of the mass starvation and destruction wrought by the Lannisters, you know, and the War of Five Kings in general, but no one more so than the Lannisters. And they both have this same sort of, do you know who I am when they're confronted by sparrows? Yeah. Do you know who we are? (laughs) And the answer is no, they don't really. I wonder if Joanna was like this because it seems to be a recurring theme with all the Lannisters, not just Cersei, not just Tywin, not just Jaime. But Joffrey, even even like Marcella a little bit, is kind of looks down on the commoners and she's a pretty decent kid. I don't know that Tommen has, but he's only seven. Even Tyrion, though. Tyrion wasn't, we, we talked about, and when Tyrion had an opportunity to win the commoners over, he never really tried. He just assumed they would hate him. Maybe he was right, but he didn't, didn't try and didn't give them much thought. And Same sort of flaw. All the Lannisters seem to have this flaw, and it kind of makes sense given their extremely privileged upbringing, their extreme distance in in status, things like that. And I don't mean it makes sense in that it's justifiable. It just makes sense given the way the pieces line up. And yeah, there's denigrating language thrown about, like these useless mouths, things like that. You know, these these are real people. And there's a bit of a parallel. Jamie has a a remembering of his bath with Brienne um, while he's taking a bath here in this scene. And, uh, well, Brienne had a bath in in her second chapter, and she started to think about uh, Jamie and tried to stop thinking about Jamie. Right here, Jamie was getting a little uh, blood flowing to his genitals because of Pia, and he was trying not to think about that. There's some big parallels here to Lancel with Baylor the Blessed and Dana the Defiant and Amare, how they have a sort of outspoken, big personality wife who is set aside due to extreme religion and aren't happy about it <laughs> and are absolutely not going to just sit still and take it, especially the part about not having a lover. And in both of their cases, perhaps multiples, of course, Dana famously had did have a child in captivity, and that turned out to be Damon Blackfire. But as we noted with uh, Amore Frey, hmm, she, like Pia, may not be all that likely to have children. We'll see, though. We'll see. Jamie tells Lancel the realm would have been better served if Baylor had closed his eyes and just lain with Dana, just gotten it over with, just been done his kingly duty, so to speak, without realizing the irony in his own statement, Cersei might have closed her eyes and just been with Robert. That's something that he hates to think about and doesn't think that Cersei should have had to suffer through, yet he doesn't really see his bias here, that he's asking something from someone that isn't close to him that he specifically wouldn't ask of his own blood. So yeah, a little hypocrisy there, but now, there's also some misinformation about the Brotherhood Without Banners. We talked a little bit at the beginning about the misinformation in terms of identity, but it's not just that. It's not just the de- fact that Beric's been dead for a while. Mariah's reports about Thoros aren't right either. He is still with the Brotherhood under Stoneheart, uh, even though, quote-unquote, he hasn't been seen. And they're starting to assume that, she's, she's assuming that Beric maybe isn't part of their group anymore, and she's lumping Thoros in that with that as well, because he hasn't been seen either. 
But as we know, Thoris is still with him. Why he hasn't been seen, that's not as clear. But the reason Beric hasn't been seen is because he's gone. But it's not true for Thoros, obviously. Dornish Dame says, Jamie talking about Arthur Dane getting the commoners to love them in the Kings of Brotherhood fight reminds me of Sansa during the Blackwater thinking she'd make the people love her. Hey, great point. And it's also a strong parallel in both ways because Cersei during that scene was making her own reputation worse by not rising to the occasion, by sitting there drinking and being fatalistic and, and kind of mocking other people a bit. Um, Lord Commander Namian Darkland says, isn't it strange that she asks who the Smiling Knight is like she has never heard but knows the Kingswood story? Yeah, this is an interesting bit about her is that she's sort of playing, act playing up her, oh, the, we need the knights to protect us sort of angle. And I wonder how much of that is is uh, slightly cynical on her part. Like she's lying to them, not to deceive, but to play up her need. You know, it'd be like to be the the noble lady in need, which she knows will get a reaction from them. How much of that is just how she is versus how much is she playing into that role to get uh, what she needs? I don't know, but it's a great question. <laughs> I didn't really catch that point that she actually does, seems to know the story, but gives this... Uh, cutesy name, the smiley knight, you know, just to seem more innocent. <laughs> Guinevere Greenstone says, regarding the smiling knight, was she just bored of her dad's war stories or not, uh, not listening? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> if she only paid attention to the parts that, <laughs> that contain knights doing battle. Dornish Dame also says, wonder if they're hiding around Old Stone to disrupt the troops and supplies coming down from the Twins to River Run. That's entirely possible. That's a great point. We, we come into that plotline a bit more in Jamie's next chapter when the phrase claim they don't even, they can't even share their food with their, with their new allies in times of need. They can't even share food. Like, great job making friends, people that won't even share food with you when you're starving. And it definitely makes sense that they would be interfering with the Siege of River Run especially because Edmure's there, Blackfish is there, et cetera. And we know that they're going to infiltrate Rivel Run after the siege ends with Thomas Evans going inside and all that. So they're definitely in that area. They're definitely getting in the way and disrupting the supply lines and food makes perfect sense because they would want to interfere with the siege and they would want to steal the food. Liet Rubenfeld asked, do we think Lancel might die in Cersei's trial? Yeah, I think there's a decent chance for that. I mean, he doesn't seem like much of a fighter these days, but he is going to pledge his sword to the warrior's sons. So dying against some sort of foe of the faith seems likely, and there's really no bigger example that I could think of right now uh, other than Robert Strong. That's a perfect example. And he's, you know, and with Robert Strong, something I've been saying for a while is that he's got to kill some people, right? Like he's just not much of a, he's not going to, he's going to be just a, villain that falls flat of all this buildup and he doesn't do some serious damage, or at least some damage. He's got to take out some characters, probably some that we care about, or at least some that are notable. And yeah, Lancel is at least a candidate for that. So, and Kirk Evans says, is it realistic that a rape survivor like Pia would be eager to start a sexual relationship, especially with someone of a similar station to the men who raped her? Mm, we had a bit of a discussion about this in the chat. I, I think I agree with him that more time sh writing should have been uh, about this, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, but in my head, personally, I think she's just like Shay in a certain sense. She just, just wants a path to a half-decent life. Yeah, she maybe associates it with love. Um, she knows her power. I mean, she comes on to Jamie. She yeah. likes Jamie, like genuinely. But she comes on to him, and I think a lot of it um, for all that is just 
that's what she has to work with. Yeah. And maybe it's not likely that it would go this way, but it's not impossible or, you know, out of the out of the realm of, of possibility. And similarly, I think that uh, whilst what he's getting at is that there just isn't focus in the writing on it because off camera, you know, out of Jamie's POV, I could see that Peck and Pia maybe did have some difficult times there. Like mm. maybe she is taking it roughly. Yeah, it may not make sense for that conversation to come up between her and Jamie. Or, yeah, you know, even like they're right. in the same tent area. I, yeah. I, I agree with him. I have to say that uh, there should have been a little more time spent on how he is recovering and, yeah. and what she's thinking about. But I think she's mostly emotionally shut down and repressed right now. And finding has, like, someone like finding someone to hook up with that could be like a protector might be. Yeah, might be a defense mechanism, too. Uh, and that is a difficult subject, I think, for um most women and quite a lot of men too. Yeah, good question, Ann Kirk Evans. Uh, Brand Winslow brings up the a, a parallel to how Cersei and Jamie are both challenged by the guards when they approach the Sept. They're, the guards bar their entry. Say no, you know, Lancel is not to be disturbed at his prayer, and same with Cersei's. Like no, your guards can't come in with you. They have to leave their swords here, etc. Another great question from Bran is that. Jamie has these good is is showing his good side. He's a, ever since his transformation began. Occasionally, he thinks back to who has influenced him, and we know it's not Tywin for a lot of these things. For these 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 pieces of goodness, these a, interacting with the commoners, thinking of the commoners, to somewhat addressing root cause, cause of these problems. Not sometimes missing the point, but sometimes not. Regardless of how he's learning it or who the influence is. It isn't Tywin. Maybe a little of it is his mother, but that's not very likely either because his mother died when he was pretty young and we just don't have a lot to go on with what her personality was like. So, Arthur Dane, Lord Sumner Craycall, the man he squired for, is entirely possible. And at one point, Jamie does think, I learned blah, blah, blah. Was that from my father or from Sumner Craycall? And he doesn't, he's not sure who it came from. And that's an interesting, that he can't remember is interesting that it wraps the two things in together, probably because he being his son's father, being his father's son, even though he's <laughs> Tyrion's more like Tywin than Jamie is, he would not have that perspective. He would not realize, like the rest of the world does, what kind of man Tywin is. And he may give his father more credit than he deserves for good lessons. Um, you may be like, maybe my father taught me that. And there's like, no, Jamie, your father did not. Anything to do with sensitivity or compassion definitely didn't come from dad. <laughs> but, you know, you're, when, he, when you're the son or the daughter, you give your father maybe a little more leeway, even when they don't deserve it. That is a human condition. Emma, Archmaester Emma, with a great under-the-radar take here, Lancel's being undermined from afar, too. It isn't just his own reputation that he's not just out here eschewing his responsibilities and, and embracing the faith someone's talking about his member not working anymore. That rumor, Jamie heard that back in King's Landing. And that might be, Emma suggests, maybe that's a Varus rumor. Varus has spread rumors about Lancel in order to, again, clear the way for Tyrek. Just take out any of these other Lance, any of these other Lannisters that are in the line of succession. Just make sure the way is clear for Tyrek. It's entirely possible. Yeah, I mean, Lancel is... Virus is undermining a lot, an awful lot of people. Why not Lancel too? He certainly fits the mold of people that 
Lancel would want to be take uh, that Jarvis would want to get out of the way, even if he's probably lower on the list than a lot of the others. But still, comedic catch by Archmaster Rennie when Jamie's thinking about Gregor and Sandor. He thinks, but it was his brother who was the real monster in House Clegane. Literally, so now he's a real monster. Yes, Frank Kyburn's monster, Franken Gregor's monster. Indeed, that's very true. Good joke by George. Good catch by Rennie. Some people wondered and, and about the interpretation of Jamie's thought that Pia is more of Tyrion's type. And we're not sure if that's denigration or if it's just because almost no one is Jamie's type. So maybe it's not being denigrative. But I, to me, it's, it's reminiscent of how Tyrion was fond of cripples, bastards, and broken things, using his own terms there, of people who were sort of outcast or set aside or forgotten by society or indeed in, in P is not crippled, but the beauty she used to have is crippled. She has this you know, crippling facial injury in, 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 a, in a manner of speaking. So perhaps that's what uh, Jamie was thinking of. Okay, that was one of the longer chapters we've had. I wasn't thinking it would be quite that long, but I knew it would be long. So let's go to Brienne Six. Found is dead. Long live the Hound, a.k.a. the one at the Quiet Isle. Another famous Brienne chapter, back-to-back Maribald than Elder Brother is really just George knocking it out of the park with beautiful writing, beautiful scene selection. And despite the isolated nature of this chapter, it touches on themes in so many places and suggests a future, more a couple of possible futures that we need to delve into the possibility of as well. Is this a place that we're never going to see again or think about? Maybe, but I kind of doubt it. I mean, this is an important area. The mouth of the trident may be free of things like Ironborn, but even that may not stay the case forever. It's a hard-to-reach hard castle, but again, there's a lot of familiar associations here. It's the shortest of the Brienne, chapter, uh, Brienne chapters, and it's a bit of a break for all the, the hellscape around them. Maybe why? Maybe that's why it's so short. They don't. There's no time for long breaks. <laughs> and interestingly, there's both sapphires and rubies mentioned in this chapter. Uh, something that slides under the radar. Nina writes that from a chapter ending with Lancel trying to atone for his sins and urging Jamie to do the same with him, Brienne Six is focused on a place dedicated to atonement. Jamie, Sandor, and to some extent Lancel were all willing killers for House Lannister, who murdered and attempted to murder people in the Lannister name. Lancel knows what he did to Robert. Jamie maybe hasn't fully accepted that on his end, but he knows he's done bad things. And well, that makes it all very fitting, too, that Jamie was thinking about, of all the times he could have thought about it, that he was thinking how he might have even killed Arya, where the circumstances are a little different. And that makes it very fitting that we find Sandor here, who is atoning for similar things, attacking children. Micah obviously is related. And here is the opening quote. The Septry stood upon an upthrust island half a mile from the shore, where the wide mouth of the trident widened further still to kiss the Bay of Crabs. At the mouth of the trident, the biggest river in all Westeros, it's a little odd that we would have a place that's remote and a, and a place where trade flourishes. It's sort of a little bit of an oxymoron, but it does make a lot of sense. The place is unique in that it's hard. You can't just walk there. And, well, sailing there, is, there's not a lot of boats around. This is, it's too small to have large trading ships come. Most of their trade, they do off-island. They take their goods, 
go to the nearby towns, especially salt pans, and then bring back the bounty to their mm, lovely, prosperous island. It's farms, got farms, livestock, natural beauty. I mean, it is really stark to see these things, all this untouched, unravaged landscape when so close to the Riverlands, which is the exact opposite, trying to get even 10% of this restored. Prince Amond, of all people I think of here, he, during the Dance of the Dragons, Amond One-Eye, flying around on Vagar, destroying things, burning castles, burning farms and towns, just as a matter of course, as a strategy, quote unquote. <laughs> it was, I don't know if you call it much of a strategy, but he's, he saw it as a strategy. So if this place is harmed in the future, if we do come back to it, maybe it would be via a dragon. Um, if Euron gets a dragon, this would be, maybe be kind of the place he would just destroy just for the hell of it. Or he could send ships here, maybe. I mean, Euron and the Quiet Isle, it sounds like a natural connection, doesn't it? The man who enforces silence and I'll show you silence. I'll show you quiet. <laughs> it, it's maybe just a parallel theme, but it might be foreshadowed because all this is obviously happening. We're seeing this place right after the rise of Euron. On the other hand, this hermit's hole, the so-called cave with a door on it, could probably withstand some dragon flame, right? It's, it's a cave. Caves are one of the better places to be if there's a dragon about, uh, being underground and all. And it was founded 2,000 years ago. That would be very early in the Andal times. So mm, it was never important enough to face a dragon when the Targaryens did come. But even back then, it probably was an off-the-radar sort of place, given its location and marshes and the strange causeway leading to it. But surely the, the place had been originally found by first men before the end. I doubt the Andals discovered the place. Sure, they say this hermit found that spot, but was he really the first place to find it ever? I seriously doubt that. I mean, the children of the forest were, they seem to know all the caves. Maybe this cave isn't connected to the other cave systems because it's on an island after all. Still, at some point, if not the children, if not the first men, then certainly the children. But I suspect both. This hermit, it said he worked wonders. Maybe there's something magical about this, this spot. Maybe, or maybe it's just stories, but perhaps the first men and the children also worked wonders in this place. From the singers of the songs of earth, though, this place is now the quiet isle. That is a change in demeanor and a change in worship, but perhaps a similar style of peace. The place seems peaceful no matter who might be in charge of it. As noted at the time, a raven was sent from this location, the Quiet Isle itself, back in Cersei IV during the first meeting of her smaller council, informing them of the raid on salt pans. They, of course, blamed it on the Hound. A lot of people blame it on the Hound, but as we know, it's Rorge wearing his helm. Not only do many think this is Sandor, but they also think he's working with Beric Dondarrion, which means they're blaming the brother without banners for salt pans. So there's all sorts of wrongness so it's almost, it's, it's almost a minor tragedy that, yeah, the Brotherhood were helping the people. Are they still helping the people? That's less clear. But they're definitely not doing this. They're definitely not attacking salt pans and, and causing raping and raiding and doing all that. They're, they're doing violence is, is to the Lannisters in the phrase. So that is part of why this book, of all the books, perhaps, could be called expert level. The Feast for Crows is... is maybe the most difficult to figure out in these because of 
false information, misinformation. George isn't trying to mislead us in a lot of these cases. Just the situation is confusing. It's a, it's a really confusing thing, and George isn't trying to dumb that down for anyone. Um, the characters are confused because, of course, they are. They don't have all the information either, and through their POVs, we become a little bit confused because it has to be authentic. It has to be them. They're not narrators. They can't explain all of it. Detective Jamie can only go so far. The rest of it we have to figure out on our own. And there's a lot to figure out. Rorge is the hound. The hound is actually alive as the gravedigger. Beric is dead. And though the Brotherhood is more violent under Stoneheart, they're certainly not this far gone, as I said. So it's all over the place. It does make sense when you parse it out. But if you don't parse it out, it, it can be like, wait. Uh... <laughs> but that's what we're here for, y'all. We are here for this. So just think about this. I, I'm thinking about Rorge and the type of evil he commits, the type of evil he brings to the table, and how someone like Euron is far worse, and how this, uh, this quote sort of feels like it could come from him or be said about him, quote, He cut poor Clement's tongue out when he would not speak. Since he had taken a vow of silence, the raider said he had no need of it. That's also something Greg Orr would say. Greg Orr said something almost identical to that when Tywin was like, the scouts don't see anything. He's like, well, cut their eyes out and give them to the other scouts and blah, blah, blah. He's like, a man who who sees nothing has no use, need of his eyes. It's like, oh, geez. But this kind of sounds like a tragedy waiting to happen, doesn't it? Follow-up quote right here. The elder brother will know more. He keeps the worst of the tidings from outside to himself so as not to disturb the tranquility of the septry. Many of our brothers came here to escape the horrors of the world, not to dwell on them. This, of course, is referring to the case of Sir Quincy Cox and hiding behind his walls and, and all that because this Quiet Isle is very close to Salt Pans and, and they, knew, they know a lot of the people down there. And of course, their own, one of their own people was, was harmed by this. The dying ravaged woman hating Sir Quincy more than the Reaver, saying his, you know, that was one of the lines we get delivered in this chapter. This is groundwork for Brienne's no no chance, no choice moment, living up to her charge that he could have and should have come out and fought, though it's clear he would have died. And it's also similar for Loras in Cersei's chapter coming up next when he volunteers to go to Dragonstone. It's it's, it's a no chance, no choice thing. He, He knows that he probably won't survive or there's a good chance he won't live through it, but it must be done or many, many other people will suffer. It's very, very heroic. And Quincy Cox is the opposite. It's almost like, it's hard to imagine that mindset, either of them, of of being forced to cower because you're so afraid of something that's just so horrible or of having the, the bravery to go out and face it. Both of these are such extremes. But it is pretty damning to hear that. And especially from Brienne's perspective, someone who really takes that seriously someone who does believe that if you take this oath as a knight, no matter what it costs you, you have to uphold it. So she does not have mixed thoughts about Quincy Cox. She thinks very adamantly that he should have come out and fought and died. And she's not just saying that. As we know, she believes it to the point that she would do it herself. So it's a huge moment thematically. This is, how society, this is how this society is set up. We've got so many examples of the highborn pledging to be good lords and take care of the standard responsibilities that come in the vassal 
uh, overlord relationship that is the feudal system. And so very often, the commoners are forced to uh, uphold their end of the bargain, whereas the powerful are able to skirt theirs, well, because they're the powerful. And because they aren't held to these ideals, they just say they're going to uphold them. But when the time comes, nope. That's why this trust is going to be really hard to regain and why the Lannisters are not necessarily the one, or perhaps the worst to try to regain that trust because they have already thrown that trust away before. Multiple times. They have shown repeatedly that they are not worthy of that trust. In fact, they will not ju- they're not just not worthy of it, but they will abuse that trust. It's not that just that they'll fail, it's that they'll be cynical about it. Even if Janet, Jamie is, is an ex- becoming an exception to that, you can't say that about the rest of the family. In fact, here is the quote from Brienne. She says it. He could have tried, Brienne thought. He could have died. Old or young, a true knight is sworn to protect those who are weaker than himself or die in the attempt. Yeah, you know, Quincy Cox didn't have to swear to be a knight. You know, that's, that's Brienne isn't being... Uh, unsympathetic to people who don't have that level of bravery. But if he doesn't have that level of bravery, then he should not be a knight. Fair point, Brian. <laughs> and I think it's interesting to think, like, who else would respect this sort of thing? Someone who would stand up to evil no matter the cost. I think of Arya. I think that if Arya and Brienne ever come together, then she'll see this kind of, she'll respect Brienne for being one of these true believers, one of these that would might have even gone farther than her own father would in, in standing up for what she believes in, no matter the cost. Yeah, we'll get a little bit uh, more than the show gave us. Yeah. But we did get, you know, a little bit, a little bit of that. Yeah, like they did get to hang out a little, but hopefully mm-hmm. they get more, you know. And she's looking for, her. Yeah, maybe we'll, there's plenty of opportunity still to come. So, but here's a little different angle on what's going on at the Quiet Isle. Another fun quote. We are blessed here. Where the river meets the bay, the currents and the tides wrestle one against the other, and many strange and wondrous things are pushed towards us to wash up on our shores. Driftwood is the least of it. We have found silver cups and iron pots, sacks of wool and bolts of silk, rusted helms and shining swords, I and rubies. That interested Sir Hyle. Rhaegar's rubies? They may be. Who can say? The battle was long leagues from here, but the river is tireless and patient. Six have been found. We are all waiting for the seventh. So that is a conversation, brief conversation loaded with subtext. This could be a reference to either Aegon VI or Jon Snow, especially if he turns out to be considered or suggested as Aegon Seventh, that would really be the seventh ruby uh, come from Rhaegar, right? He's Rhaegar's son or the one who isn't Rhaegar's son, but is billed as Rhaegar's son. So this is this is awesome because this is right after the dairy chapter where Arya, we discussed how that is a callback to Arya's very early arc. And what were she and Micah doing other than practicing their sword fighting? There's another thing they were doing. Searching for Rhaegar's rubies. Yeah, so really coming full circle here. Very cool, very fun. It's also, as Joe Buckley suggests, it's a nod to the Shire with the whole hermit's hole and the hobbit's hole and having being a respite from all the evils of the world. Unfortunately, if we take that a little bit farther, the Shire gets scoured at the end of The Lord of the Rings uh, as Saruman takes revenge for the defeat of Sauron and, well, his own defeat. And 
Yikes. Uh, this is something I've been considering as well. Interesting that Joe considered it on his own without us coordinating on that point. Because obviously when I bring up Euron and talking about silence and, and similar language here, Euron drinking from a silver cup while wearing nothing but a black sable coat, cloak and a red eye patch. And he tells his brother how he took shade of the evening and bolts of silk from warlocks. And then we have this quote that sounds a little familiar. I mean, rubies have a, a, a lot of association with deception, especially glamours. They chose the name of all possibilities, Driftwood, to rename Sandor's horse. A driftwood crown has just been placed on Euron's head. And we discussed how treasures from the sea are part of the Ironborn mythos. And this one, we're talking about things washing up on shore, strange, wondrous things, right? Rivers are replacing the sea here, but it's the same kind of concept. The bounty of death and blood and battle, the drowned god approves. <laughs> Elder brother even has his own drowning and wakes up in what is from him a paradise of sorts, a rough equivalent to a, a living, real-life watery halls. Quote, Before I could turn, something slammed into my head and knocked me back into the water, where, by rights, I should have drowned. Instead, I woke here, upon the quiet isle. The elder brother told me that I had washed up on the tide, naked as my name day. I can only think that someone found me in the shallows, stripped me of my armor, boots, and breeches, and pushed me back out into the deeper water. The river did the rest. We are all born naked, so I suppose it was only fitting that I come into my second life the same way. I spent the next 10 years in silence. Aaron probably won't spend the next 10 years in silence, but he was, he did go off into the tide to worship. And then when he came back, I mean, he'd taken all his clothes off. So he was naked, stripped of his armor. And well, he wasn't wearing armor, but stripped of just about everything. And then taken and thrown into captivity in the silence. He's already on his second life after his drowning. Uh, after drowning off Fair Isle and becoming a holy man. And maybe you could call this his brief third life uh, in Euron's Hole of the Silence. And it's really, really, really well done. This just blows me away. George's world building, the way he's able to overlap cultures and characters in, in these authentic ways and showing how this version of this type of archetypal character turns out a certain way when they're born ironborn or if they're born into the faith they come out a different way or if they're born in essos they come out a different way same goes for magical concepts we have looking into the future via the flames we have it looking through the trees we have it potentially even other ways are these all touching onto the same magical forces and giving it a different name or are these different magical forces supplying their followers slash worshipers, devotees with these powers, but they're sep coming from separate sources. I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever know. I don't know that it's important for us to know, but it's explained to us in such a very, what feels like authentic way. Here, in addition to the concept of second life, we actually associate that term with skin changing. Again, we have second life of this elder brother is being set up or being suggested as part of his devotion to the, the seven but it quite clearly harkens to ironborn attitudes that we've seen from their religion. And quite clearly, the, the term of second life, like I said, is a skin-changing concept. So that's so cool. Also, Dwight Schrute loves to play it. Good point. <laughs> Dwight Schrute is a fan of second life. Jim uh, Halpert, a little bit of a fan too, likes to see himself as a guitarist. Yeah, Philly Jim. Philly Jim. <laughs> so this 
this also applies this this whole overarching concept, this whole overlapping ability of the world building ability. That's not the right word, but just this this application, these ancient concepts. Like I brought up in the last chapter briefly. This is where I really wanted to get into it more. Dynasties mistaken for single figures. Hound's Helm, you know, the Hound's Helm is like the version of the name Brandon. Brandon the Builder, is he one guy or multiple guys? We don't know. I lean towards multiple figures. But even if he wasn't, the, say, the concept still applies in that it presents the notion of multiple people. There's so many Brandons and we go back and forth on whether it's some sort of continuum, whether it's just the same figure reoccurring throughout history. And I don't mean literally the same, but I, these concepts carried forward as dynastic ideals rather than individuals, but remembered by history as single figures. The Pearl Emperor ruled for generations or hundreds of years, but maybe that was just an em- a dynasty of Pearl Emperor rulers that one passed down to the other and then another branch overthrew them. Thousands of years later, the stories are not remembered the same way. They were maybe never written down in the first place. What does the game of telephone look like after thousands of years? How, does, how do these concepts come out after so long? Well, this might be what they look like. They might look like the, the Grey King, who is actually several kings in the Grey King line, might actually be remembered as one person. The Bloodstone Emperor might represent a dynasty that overthrew a different related dynasty represented by the Amethyst Empress. And the Amethyst Empress simply founded that dynasty and wasn't li- literally living for several hundred years until her brother overthrew her or what have you. There's no chance that these original stories are, in, are encapsulated with all the original detail and context. But George gives us enough to work with. And, it's in, and once you see these parallels, these overlaps, you can't unsee them. And you start seeing them all over the place more and more. We're still fresh off the broken man speech as we come to a place where we may as well find the ultimate broken man in Sandor Clegane. Perhaps nobody embodies that more than him in this story, either his memory or his actual person in this case. But the result is essentially the same for now. The real Sandor and this one that is masquerading as him, they're very different people, but they're both described perhaps as broken men who have no hope, no no one to love, no one loves them. Not that I think Rorge could be fixed by such things, but if he had those things when he was much, much younger, maybe, maybe during his upbringing, maybe that's when it went wrong. Winning and Joe writes that winning and losing doesn't matter in cases like this. If you can protect someone, you do no matter what. And that is such a big, important theme for Brienne, such a philosophy that she herself adheres to. And it's a difficult one to uphold, which is why it's so powerful and potent and sets an example and why people like Sir Heil Hunt and others and Jamie are struck by Brienne and kind of want to follow her. <laughs> Very early on, when the raven was sent about salt pans and the hound, we speculated Elder Brother was lying to the crown on purpose to protect Sandor's identity. But as he admits here, he went too far with that. It was a mistake to allow the hound's helm to be taken up and used by somebody else because the hound was a fearsome man. And now you have a terrifying person, an evil person adopting the hound's persona, co-opting that fearsome reputation to do even worse. 
And that's no small thing because the hound's reputation was, was pretty bad. And it's getting worse given all these things attached to him. Here's the actual Sandor sighting, though. The non-Rorge, real gravedigger Sandor sighting. On the upper slopes, they saw three boys driving sheep. And higher still, they passed a lichard where a brother bigger than Brienne was struggling to dig a grave. From the way he moved, it was plain to see that he was lame. As he flung a spadeful of the stony soil over one shoulder, some chanced to spatter against their feet. Be more watchful there, chided Brother Narbert. Septon Maribald might have gotten a mouthful of dirt. The gravedigger lowered his head. When Dog went to sniff him, he dropped his spade and scratched his ear. Obviously a lot of subtext beyond even Sandor. The, the moment comes immediately after they discuss Stranger. So it's part of the clue is that right after they discuss Stranger, we see this guy <laughs> and Stranger is obviously Sandor's horse and like follow anyone but him. So that in itself is a piece of, of a clue. The fact that the horse even is here at all because no one could bring Stranger anywhere except for the hound. <laughs> He's like, don't touch me. The horse bites off Brother Gillum's ear when he attempts to geld him. And Arya is much quicker than Brother Gillum. Of course, that's not surprising. Arya is very quick, but Stranger tried to bite her face too. <laughs> she got out of the way. Arya likes horses, but she thinks of Stranger, quote, She had never known a horse so quick to bite or kick. Yeah, and this is partly reflective of Sandor's personality. The horse itself is a reflection of its master. And that's a bit of irony or playfulness on George's part, given that it's so common for dogs to take up the attitude and personality of their master. Whereas in this case, it's the dog whose personality is taken up by his horse. <laughs> Here is another quote that is a seminal one. This one is right up there, maybe not quite as emotional as Septon Maribald, whose quote we didn't read because it's so emotional. We instead directed y'all to watch uh, Scad's retelling of it, his dramatic uh, acting of it out. But here we have one that's, if it wasn't for <laughs> Septon Maribald's quote, this might be even more cited. But it's so good still. Our gravedigger knows no rest. Rivermen, Westermen, Northmen all wash up here. Knights and knaves alike. We bury them side by side, Stark and Lannister, Bracken and Blackwood, Frey and Derry. That is the duty the river asks of us in return for all its gifts, and we do it as best we can. Sometimes we find a woman, though, or worse, a little child. Those are the cruelest gifts. He turned to Septon Maribald. I hope that you have time to absolve us of our sins, since the raiders slew old Septon Bennett, we have had no one to hear confession. I shall make time, said Maribald. Though I hope you have some better sins than the last time I came through. And even, of course, even that doesn't get a laugh, even though it's Maribald joking. Um, even, even this is not, a, they still don't laugh because this is a place where, like everywhere else right now, the laughter has mostly died. It's a superb way to frame this war as pointless, though, right? There's, it's, it's blind in terms of who it harms. Even the, it fits in extremely well with what we just saw at Derry and how the commoners are ignored, their plight is ignored, even after so much has happened, even after it's so blatantly obvious what they've suffered, even without looking too deeply, one can see this. It still gets ignored by the powerful. They still just think of the commoners as 
barely above beasts of burden themselves. There's no real respect there, no compassion, and only people like this do differently. And they're limited in their ability to help. They don't have a lot of power. They can't go out and fight the world. The world is too dangerous, too deadly. They're all they can do in this sense is carve out a little spot of peace and hold on to it. But that's not for someone like Brienne. Even this level of peace, we're talking about Lancel shirking his responsibilities to the world in favor of his own faith, even though there's a lot of service in that dedication. I wonder how this is going to go. Can people just stay out of it? Is that possible? Will the war eventually come to them? Even these isolated folk, I have my suspicions that even they will be drawn in at some point. And it, and it won't be pretty because they won't fight back, I don't think. And nor are they very capable of. And nor is there anyone nearby to help them. If ships come or a dragon comes, who could stop that anyway? Let alone get to the Quiet Isle to actually defend it. Hmm. Interesting. The death metaphor in terms of Sandor Clegane is, is an important part of this scene here and the discussion of second life as a metaphorical thing rather than a supernatural thing. And for example, he flat out says, the man you hunt is dead. And that, quote, I buried him myself when talking about Sandor Clegane or the hound, not Sandor Clegane. The hound is dead. Sandor Clegane is alive. But he also says this. When I died in the Battle of the Trident, I fought for Prince Rhaegar, though he never knew my name. I could not tell you why. Save that the Lord I served, served a Lord who served a Lord who had decided to support the dragon rather than the stag. Had he decided elsewise, I might have been on the other side of the river. The battle was a bloody thing. The singers would have us believe it was all Rhaegar and Robert struggling in the stream for a woman both of them claimed to love. But I assure you, other men were fighting too, and I was one. Indeed. This is a, again speaks to what I was saying about just the plight of the commoners being ignored in favor of the sexy Rhaegar versus Robert struggling in the stream for a woman both of them claim to love. That's the thing the singers want to talk about. So that's the thing that gets more remembered. And I, it's interesting too to, to, that he's a little, throws a little shade on here that they both claim to love. <laughs> yeah. I, I really appreciate that, by the way. Yeah. They both claim to love. Robert, mm, I don't think you loved Leanna. You certainly had starry eyes for her. You certainly had feelings for her, but love, mm, I'm skeptical that love is the right word. Rhaegar, there's a better chance Rhaegar had love for Lyanna, but even that is... It's a better chance. I think my definition of love is just different than a lot of people in the stories, perhaps. I agree, too. I, yes. I, I don't believe in love at first sight, for example. Yeah, and because Rhaegar actually got to know her a little bit, but still. <laughs> yeah, that's not very long, but anyways, Rhaegar is at least more believable. Robert, yeah, he was just was idealizing her. Yeah, yeah, he was projecting an ideal. You're right, she's, she was not the man. She's not the woman Robert thought she was by any means really that's really well done and this is a man who has spent 10 years in silence and contemplation this is a guy who's probably thought a lot about what love is and what it means although it, for him it's probably more directed towards love of god of the gods and of faith rather than love of a woman nevertheless it's something he's put a lot of thought into i would think and his own backstory as nina writes has quite a few parallels with the way he describes sandors right 
a man trained for battle from a young age who didn't really know what, what the fighting was all about, who was drunk most of the time when he wasn't fighting, which is a clear sign of uh, dealing with trauma or abuse, you know, drinking to forget, which is, of course, <laughs> part of the title of our Cersei chapter coming up next because she's doing the same. And so did Robert. And quote, written red and blood and wine. That's his life that elder brother described before his rebirth. So he says he fought for the, uh, on the trident for Rhaegar, but not out of loyalty to the Targaryens, just because he was told to, and that he quote unquote died there, right? And then, then was washed up in the quiet aisle. So just loaded with metaphor, but metaphor that's really easy for us to break through and understand. It's not super concealed beneath the surface. Almost straightforward once you catch sight of it. Now, like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Brienne has her own sort of confessional moment at the end. She sort of, I wouldn't say breaks down, but lets the dam burst and lets out a lot of emotions that she was holding back. Things she didn't want to say, things she was keeping private because normally these are the things that she associates with being mocked, brings up that what Randall says to her really does bother her. She pretends it doesn't bother her, but it does matter to her, which we, of course, know very few people can really honestly take all these awful things said about them and, and, and genuinely not be bothered by them. It's usually an attitude, a projection. And so Brienne is saying, yeah, these things do bother me. It does bother me that people don't give me consideration that I'm thought of as lesser, that all these various things that we've been over before, we don't really need to go through them again. They all just come pouring out of her. It's really meaningful to see that she gets this chance to spill, to vent a bit. Uh, she really deserves it. And it's great that it's, she's able to do it in a safe space where there's not someone that's going to use it against her. Because in the past, it was used against her. And, we, and it gets us thinking, too, about what is motivating her. Because the elder brother's like, look, you can't, this isn't going to end well. You can't go out into the world and fight all these things. I know, I've been there. He's like, take it from me. You're not going to find what you want out in the world. And what is it you want out in the world? Yes, you're looking for Arya and Sansa. That's a noble goal. But what else? What motivates you to find them? Is it this loyalty? Is it your oath? Are you, are you sure that's all of it? How much hate is motivating you? Is hate motivating Brienne revenge on Stannis? Hatred at how she was treated by other knights? Does she, is that part of her motivation that she doesn't necessarily accredit? You know? Hate is a huge theme for Sandor in this chapter. Elder Brother says it's what kept him going. It was his motivation. It was almost like the fire keeping him going. It's like his fuel, and that is dark. But it's a fact of life for a lot of people that hate is powerful. Anger is powerful. They can be destructive emotions, but they are undeniably energetic emotions. They are not passive. They are not the kind that make you sit there and wallow. They are the types of emotions that make you take action, often violent action, and it can spiral, right? It can, these things just build on themselves. Violence begets more violence. Hate begets more hate. Destruction beats more, uh, begets more destruction. And only people like this, only these very rare souls amidst so much chaos and destruction can stop and have the wherewithal to say, this is wrong. Even though I'm powerless to stop it, I can do my small part to help in some small way. Really, really strong chapter, really powerful. It's not one that I need to say that about because it's more obviously that way. This is one of those ones that really stands out 
without <laughs> needing explanation, yet the explanations are part of what makes it so great. Stoneheart, too. This, this theme of hatred applies elsewhere. Like, doesn't she also burn with hatred for the Lannisters and Freys? Is that part of her life force? Is that part of what Barrett gave up? The others, too, they seem to be burning with hatred, an icy, cold burn, but they seem to hate humanity. That was perhaps how they were built. Robert Strong, he had a lot of hate when he was alive. Does he still have that now as, as an undead being? Among the living, the Sand Snakes, there's a lot of hate in them. They want revenge badly, as much as anyone. They want revenge and, and are willing to kill for it. The, the Blackfish, he has a lot of hatred towards the Lannisters, towards Jaime, towards the phrase, um, maybe towards life. Uh, maybe he, he's maybe perhaps a little bitter in general about certain things in life. John Connington, talk about full of hate, full of bitterness, and full of grayscale. <laughs> That's not helping. Joe Buckley points out, uh, in addition to the last chapter, um, where we got the comparison of Pia and Harrenhal and Egret and Queen's Crown, this spot is a bit similar to Queen's Crown in that it's isolated and there's this lake that makes it hard to approach. You have to follow this kind of hidden causeway. And of course, that's not a, there's no faith described as part of, of finding that causeway up there. But it's really all in while you're standing, isn't it? Here's just a great line. Lady Brienne is a warrior maid, confided Septon Maribald, hunting for the hound. I? Narbert seemed taken aback. To what end? Brienne touched Oathkeeper's hilt. His, she said. <laughs> yeah, that's the most badass line of the chapter, I would have to say. Probably the most badass line of the four chapters of the day. Narbert mentions that the elder brother was, quote, blessed with healing hands and that he has, quote, restored many a man to health that even the maesters could not cure. Like, say, what happened to the hound? <laughs> but again, this is another one of these, like, oddly, slightly supernatural sounding things from a place that was associated with miracles being worked long before this guy came along. And that's kind of why I brought up the potential for this place to actually have a little magic associated with it prior to the Andals even. Who knows? Maybe there's something in the water. <laughs> Here's a, another brief quote. It's hard to speak of sin with signs and nods, talking about confessing, which they're allowed to speak sometimes, even though they have their vows of silence, because you can't confess with signs and nods. That is a really interesting concept to bring up, given we have so many silent characters and some that haven't even come on stage yet, like Wex, who technically has been on stage, but Wex has been gone for a while out of the narrative and he's about to reappear in uh, Dance with Dragons and he had to communicate uh, creatively because he has, uh, he's mute. And of course, Sir Illyn in Jamie's chapters, Sir Robert Strong, we talked about the, the mutinous theme, the dusky woman, et cetera. Uh, a criticism of Elder Brother, we have mostly good things to say about him, but just like Lancel, he just takes this whole idea of faith healing wounds a little too far. The idea that he's like, now nah, the Dairylands are going to be in good shape now that Lancel's in charge. It's like, nah, actually, he's going to be leaving soon <laughs> and just kind of abandoning it. I'm not abandoning it because he's leaving it in, in people's hands. He's not just walking away entirely. Still, it's not exactly what Elder Brother had in mind, probably. And Elder Brother would be almost certainly horrified to learn that Cersei has rearmed the faith. That has got to be... I wonder if George considered including that news here as something they had learned, but I guess he decided to uh, not go that route. Most likely, they just find out off-page later. 
Another reason among a thousand to like Maribald, he cheerfully dismisses the idea that silent sisters are forced to be silent by having their tongues removed. He points out the power of oaths and power of vows and how they are less meaningful when you don't have to give anything up. It's something like what Stannis says, right? I think it was Stannis who says, everyone does their duty when there's no cost to it, right? But, and if you have your tongue removed, a vow of silence is like, well, yeah. What what exactly are you promising to do? Something that you already can't do. It's like, it's like a a man with no legs promising never to stand again. Like, okay. <laughs> like, what kind of, that's nothing. But still, it would be pretty, um, it is still very interesting to see these things and, and to unpack them and to get the real story, to have Maribald be looked like, no, these silent sisters, this is a really big deal, what they've devoted themselves to. This is a serious sacrifice they've made. And we should, maybe even if we don't agree with that sacrifice, you should still honor it and respect the power of it and the strength it takes to do that. Although in some cases, people are forced into the silent sisters. And that's something that neither elder brother nor Maribald necessarily acknowledges here, though perhaps they would if pushed on it. Um, elder brother's point in talking to Brienne is trying to dissuade her from her quest which is interesting because Randall Tarley does the same thing, but they use so much different language. Randall Tarley just demeans her and insults her and belittles her. And, and they both bring up the father. Randall's like, no one deserves a daughter like you. Your father's a good man, but he doesn't deserve you. Whereas elder brother uses her father, but in a very different approach. He says, your father would be so sad if you died. Your father would go be your a daughter. You don't have to do the things he wants. You know, you don't have to go dress up in a, a dress and be a noble lady. But your father loves you, despite all that. Like, set aside all these social conventions and you still have a father who loves his daughter and doesn't want her to end up dead in a ditch somewhere. Which would be true if he was a son as well, except that society forces, doesn't really allow for sons to stay home, except in rare cases. Uh, but he says, look, set all that aside. It doesn't matter. You're trying to be a knight. It's it's important and it's valuable. It's what you're doing is, is amazing. But it doesn't erase the fact that you have a father who loves you and he wants you to, to live and thrive and all that. It's a tough thing that all children have to wrestle with making themselves, making um, going out into the world and being an individual and having their own goals and not being beholden to their family. But you also don't want to just impugn or ignore the people who raised you and what they did for you. And you want to respect that. And, and uh, not, it's not about disappointing them. It's about surviving and not, having, not making them go through that grieving process, things like that. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a rock and a hard place for sure. It goes to show something George is so good, making something seem clear and then showing an angle we hadn't, considering, we hadn't considered very well and going, yeah, all right. It's not so clear after all. There really is two sides to this thing that seemed one-sided. Brienne also just beats herself up. It's really sad when she thinks about her brother Galadon, named after the heroic Tarth legend, legendary figure that was her, her brother Galadon, the four-year-old, who died uh, drowning, of all things, to have in this chapter amongst that theme. And it's sort of like... I wonder I, if he was one of the little children that washed up. Oh. No, he wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, that's the wrong geography. Yeah, but yeah, not still. at all. <laughs> I picture him drowning in a well or something, but I don't, I don't know. That's a weird imagination you have, Aziz. Well, I just think of it because of Malara Heatherspoon is somewhere, is somewhere around okay. here. You know, and just, yeah, I don't know. 
<laughs> There's not a great reason for it. Yeah, it's just interesting. You have like an instant idea of where he drowned. I just pictured, you know, they were they live on an island. Yeah, there's so many ways it could have happened. There's no reason for me to, to focus on that one possibility, but it is where my head goes. I don't know why. So there's a bit of a like Catelyn and John. It should have been you feeling, except that it's it's not quite so harmful, not so destructive in that sense, because it's not a, a mother saying that to some child, adopted child. This is Brienne putting that on herself. She's saying, I should have been the one to die. And my brother should have lived so that my father could have the son that he always wanted or that he deserves. It's really sad that she's putting herself down like that. She's thinking of herself as lesser. She's thinking a son would have been better. I should have been a man. It's very similar to the, the Cersei's self-hatred, self-hating misogyny. But this is a lot less hateful and more of low self-esteem sort of approach to it. And Kirk Evans references Deadwood here, of all things. He says, there's a line from Al Swearingen from Deadwood, who is an extremely quotable character, played by the same man who played Brother Ray. That's uh, Ian um, McShane. And the line is, you can't slit the throat of everyone whose character it would improve. <laughs> because that would just be too many people for, <laughs> for one thing. And because, well, you just physically can't reach them all. It's really true. It's like, yeah, there's so many awful people, but we can't just kill them all. That would, that's, that's not a solution. I love Deadwood, by the way. <laughs> Al Swearingen's such a great character. And not a, not a good person, but a very, very interesting character. Really well played, really well acted. Guinevere Greenstone says, how come Brienne is not allowed a little boy in her room, but it's okay for the elder brother to shut himself in with her for hours without question? Great point. Yeah, it's another under the radar, maybe not so under the radar, but... Uh, aspect of of the faith that is really not so fair. It's quite chauvinistic, quite misogynistic, the the faith's beliefs, because it's almost exclusively designed by men for men. It, like they they don't have their place, their carve out for women in this religion, besides the the parts of the deity that uh, apply, like the mother maiden and crone, is the silent sisters. That is their place. That's the 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 ecclesiastical setup here. The structure is for the men to basically have Every last bit of power in within the structure, within the hierarchy. The Silent Sisters have like no power. They have a little bit of respect, a little bit of reverence. It's like, oh, don't harm them. But they have no political power. They have no say in the way the rules are enforced, what the rules are, the way it's, I mean, they're forced to not talk. Like what? It's extremely blatant. And that- Silent Sisters is kind of weird, by the way. They're yeah. forced to not talk because I feel like- Plenty of them have to know how to read and write. Yeah, yeah, because they were a lot of them were former nobles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they just proliferate that amongst their people. And so I feel like they could actually maybe have like a strong community there. Yeah, they might. Yeah, you wonder about that. I, I would think too that if I were them, I would be like talking when other when the men weren't around. I'd be like, I'm not following this. I'm not following <laughs> this forced vow. Of course, they take this vow to the gods and they can take it seriously. That's how most of them would see it because they're indoctrinated into these beliefs as well. However, from the outside, <laughs> I can say these things from the outside when it's easy. Yeah, that is, it's a, it's a great point that, that there's a lot of unfairness, a lot of uh, this is a religion for men type of thing. Even Brienne doesn't necessarily notice that. She just kind of like so many other things, there's so much of it everywhere, so built into every aspect of society. A lot of it doesn't even, doesn't even get noticed because it's so ordinary. Comparison too of, of geography, real brief here, Saltpans versus Lord Hewitt's town. Saltpans is, uh, you know, gets annihilated by reavers, bandits, 
Broken Men, Lord Hewitt's Town, annihilated by the Ironborn. The difference being one is on land and Lord Hewitt's Town is on the shields. It's an island. The only people that could ever come for the shields really are the Ironborn. Think back to what Elder Brother said. He said, we're blessed. If the Quiet Isle was on the other side of Westeros, instead of at the mouth of the Trident, it's on like in the Bay of Ironman's Bay. I mean, they could not have this place. It literally could not exist. It would be pillaged by the Ironborn every other week <laughs> or something like that. Again, it's all in where you're standing. To them, this is isolated and exclusionary. But if they were on the other side, other coast, it would make them extremely exposed, extremely dangerous. This island, being on an island would be a negative rather than a positive. And that's why I think about it and I wonder if the Ironborn are victorious. If Euron's Ironborn defeat the Red Wine fleet, there's nothing stopping them on the East Coast. They may not go there, but if Euron's like, hey, let's spread out, let's start harassing the, uh, all the coasts, then all of a sudden, the Quiet Isle and some of these other places are potential targets. And they're juicy targets if you're Ironborn because they're completely unprepared to stop anything like this. There's just stuff waiting to be taken. I mean, this is an Ironborn dream if they only knew they could get there. And heck, they don't even have to sail all the way around Restoros. As we know, they can bring their longships over land, drop them into the river, and then sail down river. So they could get there without sailing around Westeros. They could just hop into the Trident, sail down the Trident, pop out at the river mouth, and boom, they're at the Quiet Isle. Again, this is all theory, but it's right there. And again, it's interesting to point out just the size and factor here. Lord Hewitt's town was, is big. <laughs> compared to these places. Like, Saltpans is actually not as big as Lord Hewittstown, it sounds like. Which is almost backwards, because Lord Hewittstown is the one that's closer to the Ironborn. But that is explained by the fact that the Shields haven't been terribly troubled. Not regularly. They have been hit by the Ironborn as recently as Kellon Greyjoy's time during Robert's Rebellion. But for the most part, they have... It's been uh, generations since the Ironborn were regularly assaulted. It's more one of those things that Every once in a while, a Dagon Greyjoy or, or Balon comes up and things happen. But most of the time, since Aegon's conquest, the shields have been fairly safe. One last point about religion, comparing the different or the overlaps here. The Ironborn see thralls as made for them. It's like the drowned god gave us thralls. They, they made weak people to serve strong people. It's really not that different conceptually from what the elder brother and the other brothers say here about Sandor's horse. Like, yeah, we're going to cut his member off and make him serve us because beasts of burden are here for to serve. That's the purpose. That's why the gods put them there. Now, obviously, there's a big distinction between making people serve you and animals serve you. But it just goes to show that this is something they accept because it's part of their upbringing. Karian doesn't question thraldom, just like these guys don't question cutting penises off horses. <laughs> you may accept one and not the other, but it's interesting that they don't question it because it's part of their faith and you don't question your faith. Another example of it's all in where you're standing and all where you were raised. With that, something to be aware of, I think we're going to do, when we have episodes that go really long from now on, I'm probably going to split them in half and release them, you know, like part 9A and part 9B. Rather than dropping a three-hour episode, I think that makes a little more sense for digestibility. 